Well, biology was never my strong subject in school. I guess I did all right understanding the, the basis of it, the cells and the genetics and, and the classes and the divisions of all of uh, the different creatures and natural world. But to be honest, it was the dissections of those animals that I had to do in the lab that really turned me off against it altogether. I mean, they were small animals and inconsequential, we might think, but just didn't settle well with me. I thank God for people that do that kind of work and advance scientific discovery and, and can uh, come up with ways to help uh, all of God's creatures. But I thank God that I don't have to do that uh, for a living as well. There's a lot you can learn, isn't there? And I did in biology from dissecting something. I learned uh, scientific method. I learned about the insides of a living organism and how they work together and make things tick and go and give life. I understood the complexity better of all of God's gorgeous creation. Today I want us to take some time and, and spend a few moments dissecting this passage about love that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13. In this chapter, which is so beautifully and poetically written, I'm afraid that sometimes we lose sight of, of what its true meaning is. Most often we hear it at weddings, and we come away feeling really good and warmed by it, and we should. But we know, if we've lived a little, that love is not all romance and roses, is it? Yeah, at a wedding we're thinking about this, this New Testament word for love called eros, which is the romance and the, the erotic love that is one of the three defined in the New Testament. But what Paul's writing about in 1 Corinthians 13 is about a different love, agape love. It is the love of God most beautifully known to us through the grace of Jesus Christ. And so today, I want us to probe a little deeper, to dissect in this passage what that truly means for us living and loving in the world. In this, um, this chapter, Paul begins with the first three verses talking about the importance of love and how it should be greater than all things and woven through all that we say and do. And then he ends with verses 8 through 12, hitting upon how maturity and wisdom are really shown in the world and in the church through the way that we love. And then he closes the chapter by saying that love is really the means to the end of faith and hope. It is the greatest of all things, and we hear that. But it is in the middle of this chapter, between verses 1 and 3 and verses 8 and 12 and verses 4 through 7 that there are 15 characteristics of love that Paul addresses. That's what I want us to dissect today. Now, I know you're thinking a 15-point sermon, Mark, we don't want to be here until afternoon, and you won't. Hang on tightly because we're going to move quickly, but I want us to talk about these vital organs, if you will, of love, the insides, the important things that give life to us as followers of Christ and to the church. First of all, love is patient, and love means being patient with people, doesn't it? Yes, it means being patient 
and waiting on people and not losing our cool. Have you been anywhere this past week where you got impatient, waiting for someone to do something for you more quickly or thinking that you weren't being paid attention to? Maybe you felt like you weren't getting good customer service somewhere. Did you ever think about what the person that was trying to serve you might be going through or what difficulties they may have in their own lives or or maybe have you ever thought about they have to deal with impatient people all week long and it makes them the way that they might be. <coughs> Paul says that love is patient because it causes us to rise above what we want and think about others. Last weekend I had my dad here with me. He was visiting with us at our house and some of you got to meet him in worship. We uh, watched the Super Bowl together on Sunday night and we did some stuff on Monday around the house. And Dad turned 80 last September, and, and he slowed down a lot. Now, I have slowed down a lot in the past 20 years, my kids point out to me, so I think it's only fair that I can say that my dad has slowed down a little bit now that he's approached 80. I had not spent a lot of time with him, concentrated like that, uh, for quite some time, and it was different. Someone said to me recently about turning 80, this, it takes twice as long to do half as much, and then you have to take a nap after you're done doing it. And I think that's probably true. I saw that in Dad. He, he didn't keep up like he used to and, and was a little slower in his thinking. But it was a, a beautiful thing and a serendipitous interruption into my daily schedule and my regular life. It was as if God was saying, Mark, wow. You want to see love, be patient and understand what it is to just spend time in the moment with your dad. Love is patient, Paul says. Love is also kind. And I'm talking about there, and the word he uses in the Greek is human decency, just treating people with kindness. It means doing a good turn and looking out for the other person or holding the door for someone uh, just because uh, you want to be kind to them. It means letting somebody with just two items in the grocery line go ahead of you to check out instead of wading through the whole cart of groceries you've got to wade and get checked out through. You know, this is an ugly world that we live in because people, a lot of times, just think about themselves and judge what everybody else is doing. And it's easy for us not to be kind to stop and remember the kid gloves with which God has shown love to us. If you want to make an impression in the world for God, be kind to people when they least deserve it and least suspect it. Love does not envy, Paul says. You know what envy is? Envy was classified as one of the seven deadly sins by the early church fathers because they knew, just like we do, that if you are always thinking about what everybody else has and comparing and judging yourself to that, you're going to have a hard time loving them because of jealousy. Envy can turn into coveting. and You may remember in the Old Testament, the, one of the Ten Commandments is do not covet. Why? Because it leads you to steal things that other people have. Or, or it leads you to put down others and talk down about them because you can't celebrate what they 
have in life because you're so worried about what you don't have. And Paul says you can't love if you envy what everyone else has. Love is not boastful. It does not boast, Paul says and writes. What does that mean? Is it wrong to, to brag about something that you're excited about? No, it's not. I can brag about my kids if I want to. You can brag about yours or your, your grandkids or something good that's happened in life. That's not bad as long as it doesn't put you in a place where you think that you're better than others. There's nothing wrong about sharing what good God is doing in our lives and what we have been given, but, but not to the fault that we think that others are not worthy of love. Because they're, they don't have what we have. Love does not dishonor others, Paul writes. And that's about treating people with respect, whether or not they see things the same way that we do or not. There are, in life, a lot of things that we disagree about, correct? Yes. There are opinions that we have and passions that, that drive us, that make life beautiful and make us who we are. Certain things tend to grab our attention. But sometimes we may have an opinion or a thought or a passion that, that hurts someone else or offends them because they don't see it the way we do. And in this scripture, Paul reminds us that even in the midst of that, we're not to dishonor people by not showing them love and honor. Certainly, there are those in our lives that, that we think deserve honor and that have earned that, our parents, perhaps, or, or folks that are in authority, or maybe the preacher even, in, in, in some people's minds. But Paul says for everybody, especially in the church, honor is most important and seen through love. You've seen on the prayer list, and, and you've, heard talk about our general conference coming up later this month in the United Methodist Church. 800 and something delegates coming from, from all over the globe, literally, to, to meet about United Methodism and, and make decisions about uh, our stances on marriage and on the standards of ordination. These are hot-button issues in our culture where sexuality is such a uh, a driving factor and where we hear it everywhere, almost ad nauseum. And decisions will be made that people are very passionate about. I'm passionate about what I believe on those issues. But, but I have seen, unfortunately, even among those that I agree with being in leadership and those that I don't agree with in leadership, getting so passionately caught up and and invigorated by the debate and what is at stake, that they say things that are unloving towards one another and about one another. Paul says it should not be that way. I've noticed that before at family funerals, because I've done a lot of those over the years, that times of stress and difficulty and great challenge can bring out the very best in people and the very worst in people. And my prayer and my hope is that the very best, God's love of honor will come out in the discussion and the decisions that are made in our greater church. 
Love is not self-seeking, Paul writes. And that means that you're not showing love or doing it with the intent of getting something in return for that. There's something graceful, isn't there, about doing this thing called love for no other reason than, than God loves us. And that's the purest motive of love, is to do it not for your own self and your own benefit, but for, for others, because it's been first done for us through the cross and through the empty tomb of Christ. We have in our family a family member that always cracks us up when we have significant family events. She, and I'll just leave it at that, uh, always wants to come to the party and to the event, but she wants things the way that she wants them, and if they're not, she doesn't handle that very well. Case in point, there's been a couple of instances where she has, has come to family events and, and brought presents and, and given those, and by the time the, the gathering is over, she's been so upset that she comes and takes the present back and she goes home. Now, isn't that interesting that people do that? Sometimes the laughs that we get on the way home after those events or the weeks after are a better present than what she would have given us anyway. But, but there's something about giving things to people with strings attached that is unhealthy and not good. When we are loving someone or giving them something because we expect something in return, that's the way the world works, yes, but that's not love in its truest sense. Love in its truest sense means that all expectations are laid aside and love is simply given out of a a gift to someone or another because God's love has filled us up, and touched us in such a way that it overflows. Love um, is not self-seeking. Love is not easily angered, Paul writes. And he's talking about here, talking about short fuses, quite honestly. The the Greek word has to do with explosion, with, with powerful bangs, if you will. And... Paul reminds us that if we're short-tempered or if we are a short-fused person, we need to be careful with that and need to recognize that just to blow up because something doesn't go our way is not in the true nature of love. Being patient is important, of course, as he already mentioned, but, but giving our anger and frustrations to God, so as not to let those come out venomously or explosively towards others, is what true love, agape love, God's love, is about. Whenever it is that you've blown up at someone, if it's been recently, go apologize to them. If you feel that way right now about someone and you've had just about all that you can take, take a time out and a breather. Breathe in God's Spirit and reflect upon love and ask Him in prayer to help you. Love is not easily angered. Love keeps no record of wrongs. 
Wow, that's a tough one, isn't it? Sometimes us humans tend to have memory and sometimes we catalog things in our brains that, that are so easy to come back up when someone else uh, doesn't see things our way. I always love that story Jesus told, and it's found only in Luke's Gospel, recorded in chapter 15 of the prodigal son. Do you remember? It's also known as the parable of the forgiving father. Because this oldest son of the family got too big for his britches. Those are my words, not Jesus's. And said, Dad, I want everything I've got coming to me, all of my inheritance. And his dad gave it to him, young man that he was. And he took it and left and swept all responsibility aside and squandered the money through wild living and uh, through, well, just terrible acts. And then he found himself after some time when all the money ran out and when all the friends had flocked to him because he was buying all the drinks and providing all the entertainment, when they had left and he had nothing to eat, he didn't know what to do. He decided that at the very least his father might find it in his heart to give him a job. It might be the dirtiest job on the farm, but at least he would have somewhere to live and, and some sustenance, some food to put in his stomach. And as he turned the corner off the road to ruin onto the driveway of his father's house, he expected the very worst. Maybe a lot of I told you so's or scorn, perhaps at the very worst, rejection and being sent back out on the road to never stop again. But instead, as Jesus said, the father opened his arms and he welcomed his son home and forgave him of all of the things that he had done wrong to embarrass their family and against his father. And Paul reminds us here, we are to forgive others in such a way. That's hard. That's very hard. And the Greek word Paul uses here has to do with accounting. It's a Greek word having to do with keeping a ledger of, of losses and of debits, if you will. And we remember as followers of Christ, as God's children through him and through our baptism, that at the cross, all of our debts have been burned and torn away. We are forgiven and set free with no record of wrongs against us by God. And we're called to do likewise. Number 10 and 11, I'm moving along pretty quickly here. I'm combining now. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Do you delight in other people's downfall? Or do you wish bad things happen to people that, that are not your friends? I, I found this happening to me last week, and it sounds kind of trite and silly, but I wanted so badly for New England and Tom Brady in the Super Bowl to go down and lose. Yes, I was pulling for the L.A. Rams. I got to see them earlier in the football season, and I just felt that they were the Cinderella team that could take down these record-setting old-timers. 
of Tom Brady and Bill Belichick. Tom Brady's only like 40. That's not really an old-timer anymore. I'm showing my age. But I did not get on the bandwagon of, of down with Tom Brady, the fervor before the Super Bowl. Everybody doesn't like Tom Brady, it seems. Or they're very vocal about it because he's a winner. Because he has broken all kinds of records and won more Super Bowls than any other quarterback. And the facts and the data prove that. It's easy for us to get swept up in emotion, isn't it? About what we're passionate about or what we think in the moment. And Paul reminds us in this scripture, don't do that. Keep the truth in mind. Keep the facts and the data right in front of you. And remember to temper whatever emotions you may have with what is good and true. Because otherwise, we can easily turn against others in the fervor of the moment to do great harm and to, to cause great hate. And history proves that. Love always protects and I think about people in reading that particular verse, people who are in the business of protecting those that are among us, whether it's first responders and our, our police officers and our military, those that put their lives out there on the line, they show a great love whether they mean to or not. It may be a job or a service to them, but, but to do what they do, shows a tremendous depth of love that the rest of us can only appreciate and thank them for. For those that work with children that are abused and, and uh, abused women and uh, bring people out of those situations where they should not be because hate and pain and often death come as a result of it. That's a love that is unlike any other. It has to come from a deep place beyond just what is accepted in this world. Love always trusts, Paul says. Number 13, we're only two away. Love always trusts. And that means that we trust God with the end result of all things. My kids are all grown and gone now, and my son is a long way away from home. And I pray every night, and sometimes during the day, for all of them to be safe and for all of them to stay on the path that God has laid out for us all in following Christ Jesus our Lord. I have come to realize, unfortunately, that I no longer control my kids like I once did when they were young. I can't protect them from influences around them. I can't be there to, to pull them back when they step out into the road. I have to let go and to let God, and to pray that they know that one of the greatest ways I can love them is to, to trust them and trust them to God. Love always hopes, Paul rounds the, the corner to the end with. Love always looks for the best in people, always looks ahead to a brighter future. Love always is positive and not negative. Don't use love as a battering ram to, to take people down or, or to squash people's dreams because that's not what it's all about. We're reminded that we have a God that, that makes all things possible. And to lift hope up 
is important. How is it that Paul concludes faith, hope, and love? The greatest of those is love, but hope is an integral part of our faith and comes when we can see the greater love. The last of it is that love always perseveres. Do you believe that, church? Do you believe that love will overcome all things? Do you? A few silent nods because you're waking up after the 15 points of the sermon. I know. Yes, we believe that love overcomes all things. And you will say, and there are a lot of people that will say it even more around you, that love will not overcome because there's so much hate and ugliness in the world. But we believe and we never lose hope that in the end that God's love will overcome all things, even death and darkness itself. And it all comes down, doesn't it, to a weekend on the other side of the world in, in a place now known as, uh, as Israel in the city of Jerusalem, right outside in the, the trash heap of it all, where, where a man, the Son of God, was nailed up on the cross in the ugliness and the hate that anyone um, could possibly imagine directed at him. Jesus was crucified there on the cross and, and put in a tomb for three days, the world thought. That is the end. Love does not win, but hate and evil has won the day and rules the world. Ah, but we are Easter people, are we not? We are. We believe that three days later, that that tomb was emptied out as a sign of God's power and God's might and God's love for the world that He sent His Son to die to save. And we celebrate that agape love shown to us in a marvelous way, and we're called to live it out each and every day. 